This is Untimely Reflections, a series of conversations with some of my friends, streamed here through the Nietzsche podcast. Have y'all seen uh, The Invention of Lying? Oh, with uh, Ricky? Ricky Gervais? Yeah, I haven't seen it. Andre, have you seen it? Yeah, I remember there's like a scene where uh, he has like kind of like the Ten Commandments with pizza boxes or something like that. Yeah, well, so there's kind of a silly element to it in that it's it's a world that's like in almost every way the same as our own, except that people never uh, were able to tell lies. They just don't have that capability. Um, so in it, he basically, through some sort of random mutation, Ricky Gervais gains the ability to lie. Um, and so it's like a, it's portrayed as like this brutally honest world where everyone's always just saying whatever comes to mind, no matter how offensive or upsetting. There's there's like no social niceties and everyone's very completely honest and on the face of it of how everything that they're doing. And so one of the things um that it kind of weirded me out the first time I saw the movie and then the more I thought about it, the more sense it made. Um everyone like Jennifer Garner is Ricky Gervais's crush and he goes on a date with her. And like early in the date, she just looks at him and she's like, well, your genetics are just all wrong. Like, uh, they're, they're terrible. I don't want to have babies that look like you. And so this date is not going to go anywhere and there's no chance between us. Um, but people are very, <laughs> people talk about genetics a lot in that movie. And I realized like, why is that? What kind of weird point is he making here? And then I realized that it's like, he's trying to have the characters express honesty about the way that attractiveness like determines so much in society um and people are not usually honest about it yeah we, we have a culture of lying that has grown up around the material condition of genetics i mean i would say there's like a culture of lying about i mean culture is lying isn't it well no i mean i guess that goes against many of the quotes or the passages of Nietzsche we looked over before um, getting together to talk on the, on the show. Um, but I guess we can get into that as we go, but I don't know. I would say just as an aside though, there's like a, maybe, maybe the way to put it to get across what I was thinking is that I think the thing about that film that has, I don't know, the most usefulness to me is just the, the fact that, yeah, almost everything that we, like every relationship, every social interaction is just like uh, covered with this lie, like syrup, like all the time. And that's like what the, I don't know, it's like what the, because aesthetics is somewhat, you know, like there, there's always a cultural aesthetic over everything. And that always contains an element of deception to it, I guess, or incompleteness. Um, so it's all lies. I guess, so I would say, the culture of being afraid to talk about genetics is there because people want to display that they're not there to judge others and that they only exist to like help life right so when you're when you're saying i would keep any kid right you're 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 saying something but that's not necessarily the revealed preference right so i think there's something in that yeah i was reading I mean... oh sorry go on my bad. Like I was reading that um, that article by Vaclav Havel, like the the power of the powerless, and like he has a really 
I think, insightful, you know, critique of what he calls post-totalitarianism. But like, I feel like a lot of the criticism criticisms he has about the way that you know people are are um, are bound up in this ideology that forces them to lie constantly and to like um, negate reality in favor of the ideology. Like that seems to apply. I want to say like cross culturally throughout time. Um, if I was to say like you know what what the consequences are of being as direct as that woman of like um, classifying people as um, you know genetically inferior. Um, I guess it would, um, it would like if if they're if they're considered like let's say part of the same tribe of people or the same group, it would create, I don't know, some kind of resentment that needs to be discharged somewhere, right? And that's like one thing that I I found like a little bit um, confusing in Nietzsche's account of genealogy of morality, where he's like, where he talks about um, a kind of like this settled. Um, social structure coming out, like if, if there's if there's a cohesive group, but then like as a way to discharge the tensions, they find like some other weaker group to subject. But then I'm thinking like within that group, right? Like, um, isn't there always like a, a risk of some people becoming like d like deeply resentful of their position? And I mean, I guess you could make the case like the um, the anthropological of the record. Or archaeological, I don't know, like showing, you know, the um, the slow whittling away of reactive aggression as like part of that like internal conflict within groups where you know people that step out of line literally get get killed. You know what I mean? So like, yeah, yeah, you shouldn't be a dickhead. <laughs> well, I think that uh, it's interesting though because the master morality is totally interdirected. So I think that's the thing in genealogy that he. Well, it's like you're saying, like, maybe you're taking issue with Nietzsche, but I think, I think maybe not. I think he might actually be describing, he might be descriptively correct there. And maybe you're taking issue with the, the master morality itself being, being somewhat foolish because it always no. brings about its own downfall. But I think right. Nietzsche is correct that it does, right? <laughs> um, that there, that if you look at, the history, like just world history, this pattern repeats over and over again. And I think it's because when you're not externally directed, not only are you not thinking about maliciously hurting uh, the underclass, right? It just happens as a matter of course. Um, just like the, you know, he says the bird of prey would, doesn't hate the little lamb that says there's nothing we love more than a tasty little lamb. But... Um, at the same time, uh, it's like you also don't you don't become externally directed in terms of noticing when that aggression is creating this resentment against you. Um, and I think the master morality attitude in like, and I'm talking about something here that's I guess you guys would understand, but to clarify for you know like the general audience, like. We're talking about something kind of archetypal, and I don't think like really exists in the modern day in any pure form. But like the essence of the master morality would sort of almost demand that you don't even care that you're building up that resentment, even if it is going to like eventually destroy you. Um, it's an attitude that like, all right, fine, bring on my own destruction then, right? 
And so that's why it keeps happening and happening. As to why, as to people getting more domesticated, I think that's also true. And so I have a hard time believing, for example, when people predict like civil unrest in the United States, I'm just like, no, that's not, that's not going to happen. Uh, I don't think. Uh, I agree. I think the opposite. As everyone gets older and the average population age gets older, I think we're going to become incredibly more harm avoidant than we are even right now. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I have an experience of someone like kind of um, um, bullying me like like inadvertently in that sense of like they have this sort of um, master morality where they're like very expressive and confident and they like keep stepping on my toes and like hurting me along the process. And then like at one point I like confronted them. It was like a, like a kind of a scary and difficult experience. And then ironically, like we became like close friends somehow. And like, I feel like that experience like toughened me up in a, in a healthy way. Um, yeah, that's well, that's, uh, that's interesting. I, I'm just going to give this analysis because you framed it the way that you did, right? Uh, that it's almost like in the master morality, uh, somebody worthy of being your friend is somebody who can be like a rival to you, right? So by confronting this person, you um, like make that friendship possible. Whereas like slave morality would be, you don't ever confront them and you um, just imagine taking revenge on them day in and day out, right? Um, and that's yeah. like the really sick, scary thing about it. So yeah. there's the quote uh, from him where your enemies are only to be hated and not to be despised. Mm, yeah. I mean, I like, I like how Zizek um, frames his friendships in that way. Like, um, at, at some point, he, um, you know, he, he describes it as like when they first get together, they just like insult each other to kind of get that like, <laughs> like bubbling resentment out of the way. Um, and then they can kind of move on to, you know, the real stuff. And I mean, like uh, this one guy who is, you know, imagine like a very conservative, God-fearing Christian when he like he went to work in a construction site, he refused to like swear or say anything um, mean or negative. But then people kept teasing him and bullying him. And he noticed he noticed that as soon as they uh, as soon as he started to um, kind of be a bully back and and. And, and swear and, and curse a lot, they began to respect him, and then they could just kind of just be normal with each other. Isn't it amazing how, like, when if we were like chimpanzees, it would probably involve like real physical combat and domination. <laughs> and so it's funny, like, kind of what you said earlier of us becoming less physically like violent and reactive. Like now, modern day people are more sophisticated. We just kind of like verbally bully you. <laughs> And you have to like, but it's the same thing, right? I mean, like we're, um, like you have to like, yeah, you have to like give a little back to be accepted as part of the troop that you could be like kind of a dick. But see, this is something I've been wondering a lot about where it's like, um, like is, is it always worse to be? like physically attacked rather than verbally. And I know this, like I, I, the, inst the instinct for me is to say like, no. it's always worse. No, um, it's not. Okay. So, so I was thinking about how, like, um, actually, you know what, um, like maybe you can, you can expand on that. Well, I guess first, 
<laughs> okay. I mean, there is a sense in which being verbally denounced to a sufficient degree can like lead to physical violence. So there's like that, right? Like there are certain ways in which people can use their words to where it isn't them directly calling for physical violence against you, right? But you can sufficiently destroy someone's reputation to the point where it does happen. So how would you classify that? Is that still, it's still that the harm is physical violence? Hmm. Well, like, for example, would you prefer, like, let's say, um, hmm, let's say you were, like, convicted of a crime that you didn't do. Would you prefer to be, like, executed, like, quickly? Or would you prefer to be, like, put in jail for, I don't know, 40 years where you're, like, tortured daily? <laughs> I guess, yeah, the quick death option is is always a good one there. Yeah. I mean, but I don't know. I'm. I guess I was with the comparison of like physical and verbal. Um, it's really because verbal, you're in like the you're in the land of abstraction and like ideas, right? And that's. You, you can, like, attack and demolish someone's, like, identity. Or, like, the, re the word I referenced before, reputation, right? Like, um, that's, I mean, in some sense, we're, like, becoming, like, a reputation-based culture. That's kind of like Hans-Jörg Muller's whole thing about profilicity, right? That, like, our new identity creation, the way we create our identity now is through our public profile. And so... I could conceive that in many ways it might be worse. Um, and, and now because there's like so many or we're connected on such a level that there can be such a degree of like condemnation that could come down on someone. I right, could conceive that even without physical consequences, it could be like worse. Right. Like the entire globe of like 7 billion people kind of like knowing well, or millions of people immediately knowing when you've made a mistake and then having like thousands denounce you like simultaneously in real time. Um, that's pretty new. Oh man, I don't know if you've seen that meme of, or it was like a, a snapshot of um, some woman, this like beautiful model who like went on Reddit on Roast Me and then someone like did this like really like nasty takedown of her. And then like um, she committed suicide um, shortly after. I mean, she must have been vulnerable to begin with, right? But like those sorts of things don't don't help. That's uh, wild. Wait. So, and you're saying she's not? Um, this is a this is a very, fairly attractive person. Oh, like one hundred percent. Like she's she looks incredible. And I mean, that's part of like the guy's critique. So he's like, you know, you're shallow. You're not gonna ever have like a real personality. Blah blah blah. It's <laughs> fucking awful. Yeah, and, and like you know, thousands of upvotes and everything, right? I mean, that's what she was looking for. I mean, I think one definition of personhood is being willing to die for an idea. Like, maybe that's a definition of man. Uh, and she wanted to die for her social dignity? I don't... Die for her image? Yeah, like, preserving her social position. Like, that was more important to her than her own life. And that leads to me like she 
her image was destroyed, and so she's like, there's nothing left but seppuku at this point. <laughs> right? Like, her <laughs> image is her honor. Sorry, go on. No, no, I think both are true. I think both are true. I think what you're describing is the emotional contact of, you know, like, the emotional substance of it, and what I'm describing is, like, the the motivation behind that emotion, like, the right. mechanics of it. Because, like, you're... Your social, your Im, like, yeah, your image is everything, right? But that's how. I think, okay, so. The the image of the martyr is someone who decides that image is everything, right? Or is it the opposite? Is it someone who decides that image isn't everything? Is that a type of martyr, or is that person just an animal, right? Um, interesting. Well, so. Earlier you said die for an idea, right? And I think in the word image, image doesn't have to have this connotation. Like in philosophy, it often doesn't. But the way that we've been talking about like a public image, like when someone says my public image, uh, that just sounds like, it's like the opposite of an, of an idea. Like it's not, it's, con it's not, it's contentless. It's just superficial, right? And so... I don't know. Is a martyr dying for an idea, or are they dying for an appearance? Like a sim? Are they just? Um, and I guess you could say it's both, but uh, that's sort of uninteresting. Like, yeah, I mean, obviously it's both, but uh, like, I guess what you're really well, asking. Sorry, go, yeah, I'll let you. I think this gets into the. Uh, we were maybe we should get to some of the quotes, but I think uh, when I was approaching the quotes, I had the realization that Nietzsche, when he's discussing culture, is either discussing uh, high culture or low culture, or to make it a class distinction, the culture of the aristocracy versus the culture of the folk. Um, and I think within that uh, is somewhat the difference between image and idea, right? Somewhat the difference between um, uh, material concerns versus ideological concerns, right? When we say ideological culture versus material culture, we're kind of referring again to this folk versus aristocratic distinction. Oh, interesting. Right. So what you think the folk culture, it's material, it's um, surface level? Yeah, so it t a tendency, uh, generalizably enough. Right, right, right. Yeah, there's exceptions all the time, but yeah. Okay. Well, if I were to, if I were to like get, get devil's advocate, though, you could say that um, high culture has, you know, a lot of trappings and presentation and etiquette and all sorts of things that are also, um, would appear to be sort of like superficial or just sort of procedural, right? I, I agree, but within that is like this continual uh, contradiction where it exists to be subverted, right? Like, why do we, why do women wear corsets? I think it's, it's actually a form of hypersexualization. So, <laughs> I, I think that goes into What is the actual, exp I thought it was a form of hypersexualization. What's the actual explanation for corsets? I, I don't think there, I, I, I mean, maybe there's some silly explanation, I don't know. Like, yeah, uh, I'm going to, I'll look it up really quick. I just assumed it's like, you know, exaggerated hip to waist ratio. Right. I, I would assume. But I'm wondering if they had um, 
Okay, yeah. The first hit I see is they were used to beautify women and also to ensure modesty, which seems to be a contradiction. <laughs> it's, it's so silly. It's like why British people are so polite, but they're so polite so that they can be incredibly rude. Like, it's mm. a form of contrast. It just heightens the contradiction. Yeah, it's a good point. They 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 have uh, they have some of the most just like dry like biting. Um, yeah, yeah. The Brits have a real dark side to their to their soul to their collective psyche. I forget uh, who told, tells the joke, but uh, two British guys are walking down the walking past each other on the street, and the, and they both bow to each other, and uh, and as they walk past each other, they're both angry at the other guy because neither of them bowed low enough. <laughs> yeah that was uh that's like uh what is it um there's like footage of yasser arafat and uh clinton and uh someone else i think meeting for some peace talks and there's like a thing in the middle east where the person who enters the room last uh is like the most important person and they're all like fighting to uh like <laughs> to kind of like be like no please after you like in a really polite way, basically, and really like it, it's. And yeah. Bill just walks in, right? He just yeah, and Bill just walks past him, and he's trying to get him to come. It's like two Middle Eastern. It's Arafat and someone else, and Bill's just like trying to get them to come with them, but they won't do it. It's amazing. Well, this is the whole comedy of American culture. I mean, Kitab calls he's the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood. Kitab calls us barbarians. So he's just, they're just a bunch of barbarians. Yeah, they, Americans are barbarians. So I, I wanted to make a, a point that I think uh, earlier about resentment, that when the, folk, when the folk culture and the culture of the elite diverge too much, I think then that creates class resentment. Um, and I think similarly, there's, yeah, anyway. Are you familiar with the, um, that idea of luxury beliefs? luxury beliefs yeah yeah we're like um i forget the guy's name but he was like like talking about how like certain ideas that have um become really popular in culture um makes sense if you're like really rich and it's like a way for like the upper class to like signal virtue to themselves but like and and it kind of works but then when when people of like the lower classes engage in it, um, it's like a total disaster. So for example, like, um, you know, sleeping around a lot and like being promiscuous sexually, there's much fewer consequences if you're upper class than your lower class. That's one of the ideas. But one of them that really stuck in my mind was where like w one guy at Yale was, you know, making some like impassioned speech about how like capitalism is evil and stuff like that. Um, just to get people to not try to work at the same like investment firm that he was going to go to. <laughs> oh my god! Really, he's really <laughs> cynical. I, I love this concept of luxury beliefs. Yeah, I think that. Um, well, so, so wait, hold on. Is Nietzsche a luxury belief system? Kind of. Uh, I don't think. I think Nietzsche can be taught in a way that's not. But uh, that's why there's a real danger to Nietzsche, because sometimes you get more than you bargain for. Um, I would say uh, 
a luxury belief that we're seeing play out, I think, is like the like overzealous identitarianism, which is um, completely um, like a lot of the, the the dreaded like wokest things make perfect sense in a in an elite context, right? Like if you're if you're lecturing people about their privilege, it makes perfect sense when you're in a room full of people who have tons of privilege. Right. Um, if you're talking to the literal old white men who are on the board of a company and saying that they need to have more representation, like that's like, I still don't know like psychologically whether that's like an effective rhetorical strategy. Right. But we might say it's like morally appropriate. But then once that, like it, once that goes from the Amazon boardroom to the like floor of the Amazon warehouse and you have like people who are both like wrecking their bodies, like, uh slaving away for amazon and then you introduce that same like uh you know identitarian ideology it's it's going to just be completely alienating in a in a disaster um and it's because it's not really appropriate for them there's a part in i think gay science where he 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 makes a contrast between uh, nietzsche makes a contrast between the kinds of people who um, use philosophy as like a sort of crutch as opposed to the people who use it uh, where like it just kind of like pours out of them as a as a, a surplus of their like health and vitality but like i'm not i mean i wouldn't i mean i i would love to be the latter but i mean to me philosophy is like a um like a craving for like a, an understanding of like making sense of things um it feels like a need it feels like my mind is ill at ease if i don't have um at least like the the constant intention to um like right intellectual wrongs um and i'm not sure if i would say like nietzsche nietzsche is always in that kind of like chill state where it's just like he's just having fun i mean sometimes sometimes it seems like it was necessary for him to like think these things through but it certainly sounds cooler <laughs> if you're like yeah this is whatever to me Right. You're okay. Oh, you're applying his own standards to him. Of is Nietzsche actually like a? I forget how he says it. Like it's like a tree just dropping ripe fruit, right? Or something like that. Is like the person who just overflows with philosophy, um, versus people who have to like use it as a crutch to get by. I might be thinking of a different passage, but um, that might be different. But yeah, I mean, like I guess I, I it doesn't have to be necessarily mutually exclusive for me either, right? Because like, um. The fact that I'm able to spend, uh, you know, at least like some portion of my day or week, um, you know, like reading philosophy and contemplating it, that already shows that like I have, I guess, kind of like a baseline of all my needs met, right? Which like there is like some element of luxury there. Like I don't, I think that's like the general um, critique of philosophy, right? That it's just like people kind of, you know, like shooting, um, um, just like having fun, like like talking through ideas. It doesn't really accomplish anything. Nothing's really settled. Intellectual Never masturbation. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it doesn't really feel like that for me. I mean, sometimes I guess it is. I don't know. Like sometimes I do find myself reading philosophy just because it's something that is fun and um, it's like something I, I like feel that feels comfortable as opposed to like, you know, when I have to like force myself to watch workout videos on how to use dumbbells, it's just like, 
completely against the grain for me. I just find it really um, boring. It doesn't really hold my attention, even though I feel it's more important often than like, you know, philosophy. I think, I think that actually answers it, right? It's what does Nietzsche say that it, um, maturity is reached at the moment when one has the same, achieves the same sort of seriousness in their work as they have as a child at play. And, uh, I've always thought about that. It's like, he's describing what it means to like work really hard on something that you love. Right. And it, and like maturity is therefore reached when you have that about your daily to day work, either because you've, um, like found you've adapted to your place or you've sought out the, your proper place. You become who you are. Right. So, um, I think that kind of answers it that I don't think Nietzsche was necessarily just like doing like, Oh, philosophy is just all chill and who cares, man. I think that was his thing that it was also his crutch, but not maybe not in a crutch in a way of, uh, that he would say that like, say the, the utilitarians are using it as a crutch or something that for him, it's like, like you just described. And it is for me too, that it's like your flow state. It's where you have that seriousness in play. Um, at least that's the impression I, I get. It's like that's just by like focusing all his attention on that, he can take his mind off like being a, you know, he's like vomiting dude dying of headaches. Right. But but I mean, also, like he's the kind of person who um, like he, he never seems to offer himself a crutch. Like he seems to attack like every single idea possible. Right. Like he'll he doesn't seem to be. um like uncomfortable in any state of mind. Like I feel like you could find um, like um, mutually antagonistic ideas in like the same book sometimes. Um, and almost just like as a way to like, I guess you could say just like offer more options for thought um, just like explorations of ideas. Whereas like if, if when I think of a crutch, it's like, well, if I don't believe this, and the opposite is true, like I'm devastated. Whereas right. I don't really I don't really get that impression from his thought, which is why it can be like kind of frustrating sometimes. I think Nietzsche was flooded. Uh actually use Machiavelli's uh argument about fortune. Fortune is like a flood, right? And it's how you prepare for it. But I think when Nietzsche's mind is flooded with the the need to think, right? Which is just like what makes someone philosophically, I don't know, possessed. Then it, like, that water is rushing and it can go down an irrigation canal into a desert or it can make it to the ocean, it can water a field, it can destroy a town. Um, I don't think, I think the incoherence of certain ideas is just a hallmark of the force um, which is happening. And I think actually you can drop a similar <clears throat> comparison to culture. Culture is like the flood, right? It's a, it's a fate, it's a fate, it's a fortune. Um, so, and when we, when we try to judge Nietzsche and we say, okay, you're being incoherent, we're acting like a shepherd at that moment, right? You're stepping outside of the process of being possessed by philosophical need and then you're judging it you're asked you're acting as the shepherd on the flock right and i think similarly the elite culture is a response to the folk culture often and just as like nietzsche is responding to himself 
Um, and yeah, it's kind of an iterative process. Doesn't that the description you just gave make philosophy sound like a kind of art? I mean, you're you're just describing you're describing the way Socrates talks about a, a rhapsode being seized by like a muse. Yeah, yeah, I do. I think all philosophers are seized. I, I think I think when someone's being very rational, they're also often being very rationalizing, and they're just but they're possessed with this need to become right to think, and so it it makes them that way. Similarly, like. I, I don't know, like, a, a good scientist spends all their time observing, and to someone who doesn't like just fishing, it will seem incredibly boring, right? Because observation is often very boring. But uh, but anyway, yeah, my the professor I worked for for a while, he described, because uh, he was a plant biologist, it's just a process of observing, so you're possessed by this spirit. Yeah, I, I agree, it's a process of art. But I think it's a process of cognition, primarily. And that art is a um, just a manifestation of that. Yeah, it's almost like, hmm. It, it it's where I, when I think about Nietzsche's attempt to like you know create the gay science, the the artistic Socrates, the unification of like art and science. I almost wonder if he's thinking along the lines of like somehow sifting out. Like part of it is a unification process, but to be able to do that, you have to sift out, um, you know, all the things throughout the history of philosophy that have just been sort of like gunk collecting, like that, the philosophy that was just rationalization, right? That you yeah. referenced, um, that all comes for, along for the ride as well. But it's like that rationalization had an artistic reason for it, or it had an emotional driving reason for it. I mean, I guess that's a lot of the topic of like. Beyond Good and Evil, the beginning of Beyond Good and Evil is sort of... Well, it, it was a decadence. It was a necessary decadence. You you don't know where the desert... Okay, uh, I, there's a famous composer, um, Ron Nelson. He did uh, concert band stuff. Um, but he described composition as being in a dark room and trying to find the walls. You don't know where the water's going until it goes there, because you are the water, Right. So, like, if you end up in the desert, you ended up in the desert, right? Oh, oops, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, oh, uh, you, you, have to, you have to live the idea. Now, coming back to this discussion of abortion, when you have a child, you have to live the child out. You don't, you don't like, abandon the child because you are this process of bringing a child into the world. So I think it's a, if you could say that holding on to all children is a decadence, well, yeah, but it's a necessary decadence, right? Yeah. Okay. I thought I knew. Okay, I was following you until that last line because when you said we were saying like it's a necessary decadence, I'm thinking of kind of what Andre is saying of like it's a product of uh, luxury, right? Or of having yeah. the time of everything taken care of. So, I mean, it wouldn't children though? Isn't that sort of like demanded by nature? No. Well, yeah, kind of, but. It, it, there's always it's a it's a contradiction heightening itself like the the process of death i mean i'm going to just put this in stupid terms it, you have people have to die to be replaced similarly ideas have to die to be replaced right so you have to i don't know risk things and lose things and like it's like a 
it's like the trolley problem of uh, you, you like you've got the lever and someone's on a trolley, but the, they're gonna live forever if they're on the trolley. But if you pull the lever, the person on the trolley dies, right? Like, what what are you supposed to do? Is death good, right? Uh, you are supposed to not uh, never find yourself. Th- what I took from the trolley problem was never be a trolley oper- operator. <laughs> um, well, I guess do we want to get into some some uh, quotes? Yeah, yeah. I guess to go back to what uh, something Carl said of like we're all bar- barbarians. Um, we could look at uh, untimely meditations, use and abuse of history for life. Um, this is section four, but it's I think very relevant to today. Um, so Nietzsche says, quote, the Greeks, the, fam- the famous people of a past still near to us, had the unhistorical sense strongly developed in the period of their greatest power. If a typical child of his age were transported to that world by some enchantment, he would probably find the Greeks very uneducated. And that discovery would betray the closely guarded secret of modern culture to the laughter of the world. For we moderns have nothing of our own. We only become worth notice by filling ourselves with foreign customs, arts, philosophies, religions, and sciences. We are wandering encyclopedias, as an ancient Greek who had strayed into our time would probably call us. But the only value of an encyclopedia lies in the inside, in the contents, not in what is written outside, in the binding or the wrapper. And so the whole of modern culture is essentially internal. The bookbinder prints something like this on the cover, Manual of Internal Culture for External Barbarians. The opposition of inner and outer makes the outer side still more barbarous, as it would naturally be, when the outward growth of a rude people merely developed its primitive inner needs. End quote. Um, well, does one of you want to react to that first? I'll just glibly say that it's heightening the contradiction that we were pointing this out earlier. I'm I'm not so convinced that he's like accurately describing the Greeks there, like as having some kind of like like unified and unique personality like i don't know that much about like the history before them right but like even even like i don't know 3000 years ago there was still like a lot of trade between different people and like a lot of different like cultures moving in and out like even even now like when we think of you know greece we think of like this this huge landmass that encompasses millions of people but even back then they had like 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 each city was basically its own nation and they're like fighting amongst each other and then like internally <clears throat> they had all sorts of like fights and squabbles right and like like lord knows how much the egyptians influenced them um so i don't know i i mean i think he's well there's a couple things so the elite versus folk culture thing i think is relevant cuz he's always talking about really the elite culture he means like the aristocrats um but then i guess you could raise well then there's a different aristocracy for all these like city states and uh there's a different whole aristocracy in ephesus and Miletus and arcadia and um so i get all that i get all that i don't know enough to really to say anything but i will say re- just having read through nietzsche's pre-platonic lectures again Nietzsche is super concerned in those lectures with like proving philologically that all these Greek philosophers' ideas originated in Greece. 
So he was like kind of a partisan for the point of view that like they had their own unique identity that like he was sort of fighting against other people in academia that they got influenced by the Egyptians and stuff like that. And I don't know if that's settled today, but it it's interesting that that you your mind went there because it kind of reveals that like Nietzsche was like that was actually a controversial thing. And Nietzsche, it comes out in his writing, I guess, that he thinks that like they had a defined national character or essence or something like that, you know? I mean, he's abusing history, right? <laughs> well, he's, it's funny because he's using it in the framework he lays out there, right? He says there's several ways you could use history. There's monumental, antiquarian, and critical. He's kind of using the Greeks in a sense there, you could say monumentally, as a point of contrast. He wants the Greeks to judge us. Basically, normally we judge the Greeks. He wants the Greeks to judge us. Um, it's you're just sort of raising the question though of like whether whether there is like a thing, a coherent thing called the Greeks that's beyond. Like, does it exist beyond Nietzsche's image of the Greeks? I mean, that's a that's a fair argument. I'm, to have. I'm glad Nietzsche was willing to die for the Greeks. I mean, do we think? Do we think the? Uh, Maybe setting aside the Greeks themselves, like that his critique of modern culture about that, um, basically that, or I mean, maybe what you're saying is like, is there, has there ever been non-cosmopolitan culture? Is everything sort of a patchwork? I don't know. Well, Andre, oh, what wow. that's, that's a big, that's I a mean, tough question. Has there ever been non-cosmopolitan culture? So I think if, okay, the, when I was watching the Adam Curtis, uh, can't get you out of my head and he's like talking about hyper individualism right and everything's about culture and i was like thinking to myself the whole way through i was like man like if everyone's a super individual then there is no culture right like or it's like this like goofy contorted like the culture is the people trying not to be cultural like which in itself does become a culture i guess that's what it means to be hipster Right. Well, right. Yeah. Could you expand on that of why culture individualism is not really culture? I mean, I oh. under I get it, but oh, just it's like uh, you know, like a culture is defined as the beliefs and technologies of a group. If it's not generalizable to a group, then it's not a culture, right? And a culture is you have to define the group, and then you have to generalize the group and say it has this beliefs and these technologies. Right. So, yeah, it's like the groups, it's like the new technology that the group is using is that we're all going to be individuals who are like atomized from the broader group because we think that's more efficient than all of these old like ties of, you know, blood and water or whatever. Yeah, we will be uniform in our individualism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, there's no other. That's that's why it's hyper individualism, though, right? I think it makes sense, but it is like it does. <laughs> it it heightens the contradiction, right? It's uh, I, I love the documentary because uh, yeah. Anyway, I mean, Carl, I feel like you would you would um, know best here, but like when it comes to like a colony collapse for insects, like as far as I understand, what happens is that like some of the insects just like refuse, if we can use that word, to like become contributors to the hive and they just like um, engage in like more self selfishly oriented behavior 
um, that could either threaten colony collapse or like you know weather it down. But yeah, like I don't know if 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 it's if it's been proven that like evolution can lead to like suicidal tendencies that like um, you know where like certain adaptations are amplified to the point where like it, it just destroys the whole species. Okay, so in bees, there are examples. Well, you have wasps, okay? So, like, bees are the most social, like, wasps are less social, right? So, but within the, the bees, there are parasites that live within the, the hives. And, like, yeah, as, if these parasites proliferate, then the hive will destroy itself. But I guess I don't know of a species... It's like borderline social in the way you're describing. I don't know. Sorry, I can't answer that exactly. Okay. Well, like to go back to what you were saying about, um, um, can I call you Keegan Assault? I don't know. Um, yeah, like when it comes to something like, um, like the cosmopolitanism of cultures, like I feel like at certain points, like it bugs me when people. Um, try to like rip identities apart and be like, well, actually, this came from you know such and such a culture like uh, a thousand years prior or something. When like I don't know, I feel like even though something um, as vague as like Western culture is indeed vague and like has a lot of variation, it feels like there's something there, right? The same thing I guess with Greek culture, like there is something unique there. It's just like I keep finding like instances where you know, let's say like Proto-Indo-European culture, like that was extremely important in um, like the, the the foundation of Greece or like Mycenaean culture or whatever. And so like when, when he makes such a bold claim of almost describing like modern people as like a different species, right? Like, 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 you know, someone from the ancient Greek world would just see as, as like, um, like these neurotic messes that don't really have, I don't know, like the same oomph as the ancient Greeks. It just puts me on the defensive being like, hmm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure those those people from back then would have really been like substantially different. But I do really appreciate the um, the intent to like, you know, flip it and be like, well, why do you assume that just because they lived, you know, two, three thousand years ago that they'd have like a worse understanding or or they'd be in a worse position to make um, intelligent critical judgments of of us. Like I guess the question would be like what what would we think of, you know, um, the generations that follow us? And I mean already I can feel myself being quite critical of um, the way things are going now, right? Like the way <laughs> the way the youngins are living their lives and stuff like that. It doesn't feel like I'm making some like outdated anachronistic observation i'm like well of course i'm right i have right like uh, i i guess like every it would be rare to find like a time when people are just like um we're losers everyone who came before us and after us is better although i feel like <clears throat> like even our time like it's so common for people to like hate yeah like, i was gonna I say i think that's I think you found the exception that proves the rule in us. And that's <laughs> that that's almost like the sign of how weird we are, I think. Is that we are saying sitting around saying we're losers. Because I think you're right that that's very unusual. 
the 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 natural inclination is to judge the people that are coming after you um and i think like you always see that like in in history and we see it in our own grandparents you see it in mythology going back thousands of years right but i don't know i mean the whole question of the the greek having the same uh being i don't know more what would you say like culturally defined than we are I think it's really instructive to sort of drill down to like what he's really getting at there. And I think it's the unification of inside and outside. And I think just by virtue of the technology that we have, we are probably different in modern times from other people. And Nietzsche knows that because he says like, this is the age of comparisons. Now, granted, he didn't know the internet, right? It's like, it's really the fucking age of comparisons, right? Mm. And like in a in every sense and in senses that are really destructive to people's mental health as like Jonathan Haidt is on like a crusade to deal with now of like how the effect that has when you're going through puberty on Instagram comparing yourself to every like you know if you're a adolescent uh girl comparing yourself to every other adolescent girl on Instagram right and like yeah. what a what damage that can like wreak in your psyche but then on the other hand just like when it comes to culture like we're in like a really weird place where like people like us exist that, um, and maybe this is what you're getting at with like your urge to think. And that's one of the things that we all do. And maybe I, I, I'll only speak for myself, but I, I would say, I think this is true of a lot of people who are interested in the same things that the three of us are. We basically create our own religion, mm. right? You, you have to, because even if you're a naturalist methodologically or whatever, like those questions still present themselves and you have to kind of have a, even having no response to the question of like a prime mover, for example, is its own form of response, right? And you can draw in this era from every holy book that's ever been written. Think, think about that. I mean, that the, just, we kind of, the fact we have to entertain the question, like did Plato study from the Egyptians? Oh, he probably did. It's like when people look back now, or on now, if like a couple hundred years from now, um, there's not going to be all those clear intellectual lineages will be completely gone because it'll be like, well, that was a barrier that we mankind crossed with the internet where now everyone influences everyone else. Right. Um, and there is no like question. It's like, did he read? Did he have access to the Egyptian Book of the Dead? Yeah, he did. Did he have access to the Tibetan Book of the Dead? Yeah, he did. Right. Uh, and he lives in New Zealand. Right. So it's like, it's, I think, so we are different in that way. And then the question becomes so are we less integrated as people? Mm. Like, is there more contradiction? Because you can take in all of these things that are mutually exclusive and contradictory, and like it all can exist in your mind. And I do feel that way sometimes. I don't know. Maybe I'll like let someone else react. I mean, it's just what Nietzsche says in Use and Abuse. You're you're just becoming more um, barbaric. Gothic. Yeah, you're just becoming more barbaric. I am Civ- civilization, as punch, dude. Huh? I am pleasant as punch. I mean, exactly. <laughs> winner, winner, chicken dinner. Um, yeah, like, isn't civilization a form of barbarism? I mean, isn't that, like, the Marxist... Oh, my God. lord thing, you know? But it is. Well, the way he's using barbarism is sort of to mean uncultured. 
like in the sense that we're not actually I mean, maybe this is the argument for the Greeks being more authentic or whatever, is that in any era where you proceed back towards a time when you might have to do more physical things to like survive and there's not like a grocery store and like, you know, uh, like you don't have a in internal combustion engine that can take you places, right? like the skill the material culture of your people and then also to some extent their ideological culture is probably going to be more integrated because a lot of those ideas in that situation are more oriented towards things that you actually have to like do in the world and that now we're like in a situation where there's all these little bits of culture that you can just kind of gather up like they're like pieces of flair um uh, let, me, let me tell a story from Kitab. Um, so Kitab uh, comes to America, and he, go, he goes to a church. He's a Muslim. And he's, like, when he's in the, this is in the 50s, by the way. When he's in the church, he's, like, so surprised because they're having a weekly dance for this small little town. And all the boys and girls come together, and they do this, like, and Kitab is describing it as, like, you know, basically way too sexual, right? But within the church, the church is being used for this purpose of, like, I don't know, it's like a sex ritual, right? Like, the kids get together, and they judge each other, and blah, 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 right? And Katub is very offended. <laughs> He's like, this is awful. And my reaction is, oh, no, it's good. It's integrated. Like, the culture is integrated. The high is in service of the low, right? This is a good thing. Yeah, you want, like, what's the alternative? That they the go alternative is banning the printing printing press, like the press <laughs> right. did. Well, but I was gonna say, like the alternative to like that is um, okay. Now the music dancing sex ritual, which is what live music is, right? Now that is has nothing to do with the church, and you know what? Like forty years later, you have raves out in the desert where people are doing ecstasy and like cutting themselves and getting whipped, and you know, like. Yeah, I'm saying we lost something because when it's in the church, then it's somewhat structured but somewhat chaotic. Like it's like a, it's a mixed thing. Whereas like the free love movement kind of smashed all the. It smashed love. <laughs> so I think it became less barbarous. Uh, I'm going to make that argument because it. It, it just, like, got rid of the contradiction. It stopped being British, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I guess this is going ahead in, like, the Nietzsche timeline, but, like, one of the most compelling critiques that I feel he has given, at least that one was, that was personally relevant for me, is how he describes, like, the um, ambition for peace and unity as a sort of, like, physical exhaustion, like the kind of people who can't really handle, like, um, disagreement and conflict tend towards unity just because they can't handle the opposite and he seems in the antichrist to like be like good great i'm glad that sort of thing right whereas like in in the quote you mentioned he's like lamenting the fact that like we haven't been able to find that unity i suppose the idea would be that um you would still need an inner unity between your um your appearance and your inside um, to be able to engage in that conflict. It's, oh, it's very strange because he, 
there's times where he says be- better to have only one virtue, right? Or one value because everything flows into that. At other times he says the greatest men have two that pull them in two different directions. And they're sort of like a walking con, like Goethe is a walking contradiction, right? He's mm-hmm. like, he's classicism and romanticism. He's Spinoza and he's, you know, the sex ritual on Volpergus knocked, right? Um, and so, and he produced, he's the great, like greatest mind of Germany. I, I don't know really the answer to that. I think maybe the kind of unity that he's talking about here might be a different thing. And maybe it's, <laughs> you could almost say that maybe the kind of like tension or he wants us to feel is like that tension, <laughs> that tension is like the drawing taut of a bowstring, right? And maybe our, our, uh, contradiction between inside and outside is like the way that manifests is that we're just like a bow that doesn't have a string. It hasn't been strung properly. <laughs> right. We can't even be brought into tension. Like, do we don't even know what true tension means? Uh, oh. Because there is this tension between inside. Like it's not a tension between inside and outside. If we actually had a tension, then that would be pushing us towards unification of the two of our internal and external but we don't have that tension, right? It's just like a, we're just, we're walking contradictions and we think we're cultured. We think we're the most intelligent, cultured people, the most moral people. Um, but, so that would be maybe my take on how to maybe suss that out. Oh, I, I'm going to grab the low-hanging fruit in your, in your uh, statement, Andre. The, the people who seek exhaustion, or the, that they are exhaustion, they're exhausted by life, that exhaustion is still an expression, right? And I think it's very funny how, like, the drive for peace and, like, world world unity is being used by the neoliberals in their, like, relentless cultural uh, crusade. And they have this hilarious, like... It's so oh. Protestant. <laughs> I mean, the ex- like, it's... Yeah, so I, I think the contradiction has been heightened there. I, that's my opinion. I don't think... I think often when we see decadence, we say, oh no, the thing is dying. When in fact, it's not dying, it's just becoming stronger. It's becoming like a Borg or a Skeksy or something. Carl, yeah. are, are you converting to Hegelianism? You're saying heightens the contradiction a lot. I, I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. But, uh, you know what we do to Hegelians on this podcast? I don't know. No, no, no. But, but I should just be an antinatalist. So like, the position of antinatalism in the modern era, I think, is just intensifying the scrutiny over the reproductive process, right? Could you expand on that a little bit? No. No. <laughs> Secret knowledge. Okay, everyone just sit with that and meditate. <laughs> no, it. don't do that. Just <laughs> throw it away at least. I mean. Um, well... Let's uh, let's pull out a, let's pull out another one. Uh, these these quotations here, you know. Okay, so here's here's one of my favorites, and it's from the uh, Wagner and Bayreuth essay, uh, and it's section number four, and it's well, I just think it's a really good description of uh, what culture means. He's talking about tragedy here, right? Um, he doesn't speak directly of like he's talking about culture but um you know tragedy in the 
context of what he's talking about. It's a art form that he, I mean, as everyone knows, in Nietzsche's first book is supposed to be the sort of highest cultural expression of the ancient Greeks. And then he sees Wagner as a cultural hero and a tragic artist. So uh, he sees in the tragic this sort of like really powerful cultural force. Uh, so this is Wagner and Bayreuth, uh, number four, quote, What we, for the time being, regard as so worthy of effort, and what makes us sympathize with the tragic hero when he prefers death to renouncing the object of his desire, this can seldom retain the same value and energy when transferred to everyday life. That is why art is the business of the man who is recreating himself. The strife it reveals to us is a simplification of life's struggle. Its problems are abbreviations of the infinitely complicated phenomena of man's actions and volitions. But from this very fact, that it is the reflection, so to speak, of a simpler world, a more rapid solution of the riddle of life, art derives its greatness and indispensability. The individual must be consecrated to something impersonal. That is the aim of tragedy. He must forget the terrible anxiety which death and time tend to create in him, for at any moment of his life, at any fraction of time in the whole of his span of years, something sacred may cross his path which will amply compensate him for all his struggles and privations. This means having a sense for the tragic. And if all mankind must perish some day, and who could question this, it has been given its highest aim for the future, namely to increase and to live in such unity that it may confront its final extermination as a whole, with one spirit, with a common sense of the tragic. In this one aim, all the ennobling influences of mankind lie locked. There is but one hope and guarantee for the future of man, and that is that his sense for the tragic may not die out. For there is no more blessed joy than that which consists in knowing what we know, how tragic thought was born again on earth. For this joy is thoroughly impersonal and general. It is the wild rejoicing of humanity. End quote. Yeah, that's a really good one. I think... Hmm. So when I think about being consecrated to something impersonal, um, and, and it's funny because Nietzsche speaks in the language of culture, basically, or this artistic immersion helping you forget about death and anxiety, um, which it makes me wonder about what later Nietzsche would think about that. I mean, he does say something in, uh, I think it's in... It's either in human all too human or gay science, where he says at one point, uh, it makes me happy that people don't. He, he's kind of like, it's a very interesting passage. It's like you get the, the impression that Nietzsche was people watching that day, and he's sort of saying, I see all these people sort of walking around, uh, following, you know, all the little lanes and bypaths of their lives where sort of necessity, quotidian necessity, like, you know, pushes them to carry out their day-to-day affairs and he's he says you know they the deep thoughts of the world are completely absent from them and he but then he says it makes me happy that they don't want to think about death um, oh yes yes he he's like they're on a boat or something and yeah it's like that. why why do they need to spoil their like you know sedate happiness of <laughs> their day-to-day life by thinking about death and having anxiety and it's like it's that's a very different side to nietzsche but it's definitely there um, and I don't know if it reconciles necessarily with like how people look at Nietzsche and the popular consciousness. Um, but I mean, no, when I read that, like it, it resonated because it reminded me of, you know, sometimes I'd be like at home, like reading something that I'm like, oh my God, this is so mind blowing. Like people really need to like consider their mortality more and like the meaning of life. And then, you know, like walk along and then you're just like, you know, 
you're in the park and it's sunshine and people are just like playing and laughing and having fun. And it's like, why do they need any of these like heavy existential questions? You know what I mean? I mean, I suppose in some situations, like um, it's simply appropriate, right? Like when people are sick and dying, but it does seem like, um, like sometimes like you're like, like poisoning um, just like simple pleasures um, ahead of time. I mean, speaking personally, I found that like, Sometimes I, I like think of um, like the worst that could happen just as a way to kind of like um, lessen the blow when it comes the later. Stoic, uh, practice, right? Yeah, I, um, yeah, yeah. I guess so. Like Seneca swallowing the toad or something. But like I, I've heard modern psychologists say that that's like a, a, an unhealthy coping mechanism that, in the long run, just makes you um, like more neurotic. I don't know how, how well they can measure that sort of thing, but, yeah. I mean, I think neurosis can be productive. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't know. If if the psychologist's job is to pacify you, then maybe <laughs> he's evil. Do you think the Nietzsche podcast would exist without neurosis? I mean, mm. Jesus. Okay, okay. I think the uh, fundamental neurosis, this passage you quoted is the fundamental neurosis of man. And when Nietzsche's walking around, he realizes this because Nietzsche is about self-overcoming, right? Becoming what you are and the overman are like, they seem to be contradictory, but they're not. The And when he's appreciating people who are what they are and are happy in their state, then he... The, he's, I don't know, it's like, it's just the contrast, sorry. I no, I know what you mean. It's like, uh, hmm. there's some, it's necessity, right? Like, uh, it, in some sense, it's good, or it's just good because of, of a just so sort of necess necessity that you're, you as an organism, you look around and it's like, okay, everyone's like doing their thing. Like the bees are doing their thing, right? In the hive, and they're not thinking about, like maybe that's why colony collapse happens is too many of the bees start getting death anxiety. Um, you know, like start thinking about the deep questions and a bee, a Nietzsche bee comes up and like, you know, fucks up their metaphysical certainties. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I guess he's just like, well, and that's sort of the passage from Wagner and Bayreuth. That's interesting to me is like, he, it seems like he really is looking at, it still has that like great man elitism, right? Because he's, you can see that tinging that passion, that passage, he's like Wagner's this great cultural hero. Who's going to rejuvenate the spirit in the Volk. Right. But it is like, it's, it's, it doesn't have that same idea and later Nietzsche that like, well, the whole point of culture is not only by the nobility, but it's for the nobility. Right. He's like looking at it like, um, well, culture can be this thing that sort of, it it's like this glue or it's like smoothing things out in um society it's helping people deal with those uh it's like our collective answer to those those universal general impersonal questions of the human condition and we're all on the same page about what our answer is to that and that that is like that's what allows then people to then not have to think about it in a way so i get i guess yeah heightening the contradiction again or it maybe synthesizing the contradiction that by having like a cultural answer for those impersonal general human condition things like how do you confront death right 
Well, in Roman Catholic France or any of the Roman Catholic countries in the 1500s, right? The way you confront death is the priest comes and he's got uh, incense and he, you know, uh, he gives you uh, absolution for your sins and then sends you on to the to final communion with God, right? And so then, question answered. Go about your day, right? And that, like, is it, is it is it an adaptation that we then then some philosopher comes around to like sit and think about it all the time, like, and raise all these questions, or does it make people weaker? I guess that's where it becomes interesting, right? With Nietzsche, does that make people stronger or fitter? Is that better for your civilization that people aren't thinking about these questions because they're answered? Um, right. And that, that, that could even then permit that somebody who's not just like, you know, the free spirit person doesn't have to take that answer because it might be better for you to have that contradiction within yourself. But I think, I, I, I think maintaining a border requires continual energy and sacrifice. So to answer that's your, that's the answer to the question about is philosophy, is it worth it for philosophy to dig up this like this thing that is no longer a problem to most people, right? Like, you could dig up anything from from the 20th century, and people will just, like, look at you like you're crazy because no one actually cares about the Nazis. It's just a, it's just a thing, right? So when you dig it up, you're, like, maintaining this sense of the tragic. What do you mean, dig it up? Like, when somebody says, like, uh... Let's all be Fabians again or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's all be Fabians again. <laughs> yeah, it's your it, yeah. it's gadflyism, you know? It's just historical gadflyism. Right, it's the problem of Socrates all over again. Yeah, yeah. Is okay, wait, uh all right, lightning round question really quick that I'm gonna ask to both of you. I'll start with Andre because Carl talked last. Uh and this is a yes or no question. But you can, you know, elaborate after you give a yes or no. Did Socrates deserve his hemlock? Oh, man. I will say no. Boo. Say... No. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I was going to get audience feedback, but um, okay, yeah. I would say no. Um, just because, like, well, I was going to say no, because like I think of um, how frustrating it is personally to have um, like a, like like people turn against me for saying unpopular things. Um, and that like the kind of things that, you know, people bring up as like, you know, reasons to have killed them off of like, you know, um, sowing discord among um, Athens and kind of like you know, rubbing salt on the wound after, like, you know, this big defeat and, you know, teaching young people the wrong thing. I don't really think you can get rid of the um, reasons that those things are compelling by just, like, killing him off. You know what I mean? He's like, he would be the symptom of something, right? Like, if if someone's kid is, like, you know, uh, um, a healthy like young athlete who's like, you know, destined to become successful. And he hears Socrates being like, well, is that really what you want to do? And then he like gives everything up. 
I feel like there's like a deeper issue. Um, right. So I shall let Socrates live. What about you, Carl? What, oh, wait, sorry. I don't know if he gets the same question. No, no. Yeah. I get yeah, the yeah. same question. Oh, good, yeah. good. Because I got to think about mine while Andre was talking. Is it good that the Jews put Jesus on the cross? Oh, my God. Can we not go there? <laughs> Do you have He's to gonna... bring him into this? No, it's the same <laughs> question, right? Well, uh, it is and it isn't. Because... Oh, I'm only concerned with the symbolism. <laughs> well, okay, well, how do you answer? Yeah, it's great. I it's mean, great. I love the symbolism. Like, of course it's so good. It's, you're, it's good because then Socrates... Would Socrates be the symbol of philosophy that he is today if he hadn't been martyred in the name of philosophy? Yeah, he died for the image, you know? Good boy. And he did, I mean, I guess, yeah, I might, hmm, does it change your, sorry, I was going to ask Andre, does it change, I I didn't really bring in this element of it, but does it change your opinion when you consider that he was given the option to accept banishment, but he said no, or, or he, he, what is it? He first was asked, like, what kind of, kind of punishment do you think we should give you Socrates? And he said, you should pay me a reward for all I've done for you, right? <laughs> right, legend. Absolute legend. But uh you know, like he the the way the story goes and maybe it's just an image as Carl says, right? But let's take everything in the Socrates myth as true that he's given like every opportunity to get out of the punishment and is like, "No, I'm you have to go through with this. I'm going to stay here and get executed." So like I guess I would say maybe he quote unquote deserves it because he chose it out of his own free will to some extent. <laughs> free will. But yeah, you see what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Salts, don't deny the gift that God gave you when he gave you his only begotten son. His only begotten Socrates. <laughs> um but I mean like, yeah, to go on Carl's point, like technically we have like this gigantic religion, right, of Islam where like they deny that Christ was even killed. Right? It's like someone <laughs> Right there, yeah. I, I think the idea is that he was like replaced by someone at the last minute or, or something like that. I don't know if Islam holds that specifically. I if they do, that would be wild. That's in one of the uh, um the not the Gnostic Gospels, but one of the like heretical Gospels, I guess they call it. Um, I'm trying to remember what what it's called, but the, I've read I've read one where um, uh, basically when the Romans come, uh to the garden of Gethsemane, they say, well, like, where is Jesus? And Jesus points at Peter and he says, that's him. And they take Peter and crucify him while Jesus stands behind the cross, laughing and ascending into heaven. Oh my God. It's, uh, it's pretty, that's like a master morality, Jesus. Uh, I love this. (laughs) Um, but I've heard like, there were a lot of, I mean, just to go down a brief rabbit hole, try to keep it brief. Like a lot of early Christian sects, had some really wild ideas about Jesus that like, like the adoptionists basically thought Jesus was born completely human. And then God adopted him to be the son of God. And at that point he became both man and God. And then when he's on the cross, God then leaves him before he dies. So that's why he says, father, why have you forsaken me? 
a very interesting interpretation. It's like basically people did before there was the orthodox interpretation, the canonical interpretation. It was like any other work of of uh, like literature that, like you know, postmodernists could have a field day telling you you have a million interpretations of. Um, but I forget kind of where we're. Oh yeah, we're talking about Socrates. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like I'm thinking, you know, if you were to give me the same or, or something like, well, if I was to like be a martyr for my work. Like if, if, I don't know, there were some circumstances where like I was brought to trial in Canada and then like Trudeau sentenced me to death and I'd be like, no. I'm not going to say those bloody words. <laughs> yeah, I refuse to like be, you know, kowtowed to, you know, some liberal agenda. And he's like, all right, well, you're put to death. And then there's like some <laughs> like, huge interest in my work. Like, I, I don't know if, if it would be like, I'd be, I'd be that I wish I could say I'd be so confident that like my work is like, like the stuff I've made is so valuable and like worth propagating that like I, I would die for it. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess like, like Socrates technically, like did he even want someone to write his ideas down? I think that's immaterial. Like I think Socrates has this conception that uh, like he's, He's like shown, this is, I mean, I, I guess I'm going out on a limb here. It's my interpretation. I think Socrates doesn't necessarily think his ideas will last forever, but that like he's, he's brought forward virtue in other people's hearts by teaching them philosophy. And then they like, in that way, he'll live forever, maybe. Right. I guess it's the same thing. Um, you know, he has like a lineage that's not biological. Um, although I think he did have kids, didn't he? I don't know. Maybe it's not important. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I've wondered about that, like something like that, like especially when when you think of something like the Hadith, right? Like where every single thing that comes out of your mouth is now like this this giant corpus of um, uh, of text that has like you know like the different hierarchy of like probability that like you said it, <laughs> and then people for like uh, you know like 1500 years are just like debating uh or like like they're they're like structuring entire lives and societies around these like sayings and where it's like almost to the point where it's so there's so many layers of interpretation that like it's it's almost indistinguishable from just like people's own thoughts you know what i mean like the the same thing comes to mind with christianity right like the the kind of faith that Constantine had when he was like, you know, he cut off his political rival's head, right, in the name of Christ. Right? Like it's it's like completely um like 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 incoherent, like as a as a doctrine, right? Like compared to, you know, what you know the person down the street believes when I when they go to church. Okay, wait, uh, so there's two things and I don't want to lose them, but I will I'll do um Okay. So I, this just came to mind, and I'm having trouble remembering exactly where this was, but I think it was in, it was some Muslim state in Central Asia or the Middle East, and I want to say that 17 or 1800s, um, where there was a figure claiming to be a new messiah. And basically the reigning authority said, yeah, we're not going to have any of that. Uh, if you really are like a messiah like Jesus, uh, we'll we're more than willing to execute you like do a torture execution, right? 
and gave him the option. They're like, you can be executed or you can never preach your lies again, right? And he's like, okay. I'll, I'll choose to shut up. And basically they were like, and I remember I was reading about this and there, it was like the history of this region or something. And they're like, and then that was the end of that religion. Right. So, so, uh, what was the other thing about Constantine that comes to mind? So Constantine famously, right. He, uh, he has a vision before the battle that if he adorns his, uh, like troops standards and shields with the Chi Ro, which is like the early, the beta version of the christian cross or whatever i mean not really but you know it's their symbol before there's the they adopt the crucifix um that he'll win the battle and then he does he goes and wins the battle right and so it's like he almost he has a faith that's uh i remember in i don't i don't know remember if this was maybe in william james or somewhere else that i was reading that there's sort of like two dimensions to religion that there's the like direct religious experience like the spiritual encounter and then there is the like doctrine right. right and so like constantine had a faith that would seem to be based on the direct experience with a spiritual encounter regardless of whether you know i know richard dawkins is out there somewhere saying like he just had a he was just hallucinating but to he him it, <laughs> to, to constantine that's real right um does anyone have a religious experience like that anymore? Maybe some people do. I don't know any of them. Um, we're just going oh, off okay. the doctrine. Sorry. This is a big thing in the Mormon church in that they have continual revelation. Okay. So they allow for people in the Mormon church to have revelations of Christ and for this to be true. So this was a big thing for the Mormons. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's uh, it goes into uh, like some like how there's one sect they they only give speeches uh, that are not written like you have to speak extemporaneously because then the spirit is inhabiting you and it's like a testify you're testifying you know um, yeah I think and, and if you look at religious revitalization you have to capture back some of this. Um, uh, I don't it's know. Like so a raw, it's like the raw dynamic energy. And yeah. then it like cools and hardens into like a Bible. Yep, exactly. It ossifies. Right. Yeah. And then eventually the ossification becomes uh, like disabling, right? If you don't break it up. I mean, this is cultural, like, uh, like cultural cultures, just like civilizations go through cycles, right? Like you have. You, you begin and you're, you've got Prometheus, and then eventually the Prometheus symbol is turned into the symbol of Eden, right? Where now Prometheus is the bad guy, um, and, you know, she, you know, whatever. There's a, there's a guy who I would call something like a Mormon Nietzschean. I don't know his real name, but he writes under um, Bennett's phylactery. And he was saying something that reminds me of this, where he was like, um, what, when it comes to... Um, what women want out of men, he he says something to the effect of like, you need to kind of start your own religion. And what he meant by that was like, um, you need to have um, a vision that you dedicate yourself to that goes beyond like any like particular concerns. And, you know, when I'm thinking of, you know, like, like reading Nietzsche and going through this like, um, like intense existential examination of like, um, all my beliefs and actions, it's 
it's a pretty it's kind of like a crazy thing to do right like this this idea of like building in a religion i mean i'm sure people do it like or everyone does it um to some degree like whether they want to or not like they they have to like build different beliefs and and cobble them together and make sense of the world but it's like to um you know when it comes to i don't know like um like intense heartbreak right like i, I remember um this one girl i was dating she was saying like well you know if if you're the kind of guy who like if we break up that's like devastating to you that's like a huge turnoff right because it's like you should be able to always like be reaching for something greater so there's like some kind of like telos necessary okay all right sorry go sorry go yeah no worries and and so like um like there's something that's like it's almost like transcendental right where it's like you you're always like aiming for the higher human there's another quote that maybe we'll get into later where um um Nietzsche talks about this right where like the, the, there's the Schopenhauer as the, educator I think or, so yeah where he's like you know like um you see something above him like higher more human something like that right um which sounds like a very Christian idea I'm I'm really interested in this Christian Nietzschean thing um uh or, or sorry uh Mormon Nietzschean thing um which is interesting because it is like what Joseph Smith did was start his own religion um and he literally had new tablets. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. He, he, he created new ta tables of value, new tablets of value. Um, and, well, I mean, there's a good argument to be made that Mormonism is like a blending of Christianity with like right-hand path, uh, like Freemasonry and alch alchemical magic and things like that, um, that it's actually very like esoteric, like occult religion, um, which means that there are you know, esoteric beliefs that maybe we don't know about, which has always interested me because there are like levels of initiation to it and all that. But um, it's not formalized in the same way as any of these, you know. He, he did a good job of making it not like a pyramid scheme because that's how it, that's how your cult dies out as if it becomes a pyramid scheme. Um, because it's, you know, you got to make your cult, you have to make your religion run like a real business. But um, it may be a weird analogy. <laughs> But uh, where was I going with that? Oh, uh, oh, sorry. Speaking of weird analogies, I was thinking like the largest Mormon church is like the most pyramid schemey, right? So earlier, Andre, you asked me about um, Hymenoptera and whether or not they experience a breakdown of sociality. So when you're looking at breakdowns of sociality, I think the answer is actually you can look at the strains of Mormonism. There's an excellent um, uh, discussion of the strains of Mormonism by uh, John Hamer at the Center Place. He's a historian, but he goes through like all of the different types. And what you see is that the more um, the more open to revelation the Mormon strain is, the less popular it is over time. And that's because it's continually innovating and losing people. Right? So, like, when we ask about Hymenoptera, if you're looking for something that's semi-social, well, they're constantly going to be losing their sociality and then regaining it, right? And I think the answer to this is something like wasps, because they're semi-social, right? Sorry, bizarre analogy. How are wasps semi-social? Uh, like, they have a hive structure, they are social, but they're also 
I, I don't know. You, I, I'd have to read up more about they, it. I just, they also uh, are more independent in some ways or something. Yeah. Yes. They're more independent versions of bees. Yep. So they're like literally like wasps in like white Anglo-Saxon Protestants are also semi-social compared to like past <laughs> like Christian. Oh my God. I love them. <laughs> That's, yeah. that's what's Compared interesting. Compared to Catholics, yes, but, yeah, they are. Yes, Catholic bees, wasp wasps. Wait, <laughs> 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 but so that's the thing was with what Andre was saying, like you know about like can everyone kind of create their own religion, and maybe that's what we're getting at with like culture and kind of the way I tend to think about culture is that it's like a, it's like an imposed net of consciousness upon everyone. Um, in a society or civilization, right? Or that's like, obviously, there's going to be, to a greater or lesser degree, it's going to consist of a series of valuations that not everyone's going to hold to every the same degree. But like, I think the more you get to more monolithic cultures, which are probably in their most monolithic form would be like, probably doesn't exist today, like an uncontacted people, right? Would be like a monolithic culture. The people on Sentinel Island probably have a pretty monolithic culture. But um, yeah, so... And I think what Carl just pointed to is kind of what the inkling I had in my head when you were talking, but I didn't know how to articulate it is like too much revelation, right? Too much individuality, um, too much uh, Protestantism or whatever you want to call it. And your church falls apart, right? And so it's the same thing on like the cultural level, like the, 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 the culture, the culture, the shared cultural consciousness that's working is the one that Nietzsche sees when he's people walk, watching right? Everyone's on the same page about all these like key issues that are like really identity defining issues. And so then we can interact uh, without much conflict and not be worried about like the human existential condition. But then it's like, yeah, you introduce too many people coming in and saying like, I mean, in the particular form I think of in America is like how we're like the most just ultra Protestant country because like you look at the early history of America and it's all these people going to found their city on the hill because they're condemning the rest of the society of being a bunch of sinners who don't know the truth. Right. <laughs> and that's kind of where you, what you get is just increasingly like, I remember reading, I think his name is Dan Barker. Um, this is from my militant atheist phase, like teenage early twenties, but he wrote a book called, uh, I don't remember his book, whatever he, he chaired like the freedom, freedom from religion foundation, but he grew up in like a Pentecostal church. And he said at one point, there was like a church his family was a part of that like split over whether the communion cup should have a handle or not. Wow. So like, you know, like eventually you get to that level of like, well, I had a revelation that the communion cup does have a handle. And so it's like, yeah, it destroys like, so I don't know. Is the answer just balance? I mean, it has uh, to be. I'd, okay. I'd like to extend the analogy. Uh, too many or too much eugenics and you don't have enough babies. <laughs> yeah, too much Spartan, uh, a too discriminating yes! of a Spartan Whoa, like, culling. Yeah, and... exactly. Too much culling, and you don't have enough. Right? Exactly. Wow. Right. You have to treat ideas the same way. Basically, is. Uh... Yeah. This is this is like uh, only read one book, and uh, read it really well. Or what, what is this? this? Is from Schopenhauer or Nietzsche? I don't remember. That sounds like Schopenhauer, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> don't read too many different works. 
Right. Schopenhauer did have, he had a whole, he has a whole thing in his essays that's like against reading, which it's one of my favorite things from him, where he's basically talking about, he's like, when you read too much, you're letting other people like rewrite the, he didn't use this terms, but he's like, you're letting other people rewrite the software in your head, basically. You're thinking their thoughts and that's bad. Um, you need to think as many of your own thoughts as possible. But it's kind of funny because he's like communicating this thought to you via reading. And so if you were to actually internalize that, <laughs> you would be just uh, like, you would be falling victim to the same thing he's warning you not to do. Um, I remember reading that and thinking like, well, that, that is why I read, like to specifically get out of like my own like thought patterns, you know? Yeah, it's, that's, I mean, yeah, that's the joy. That's the joy of reading. I mean, I guess if you're Schopenhauer and you think that, <laughs> I mean, the only there's nothing to get out of life fundamentally, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, but this is actually something I've been wondering about because, like, from what I've seen, like, you have, like, like some of the stuff you've shared, um, of like, like different memes and like, like personalities on Twitter you seem to have, I don't know, in some ways, like a an, an ex, a very high tolerance for like um, like mutually contradictory point of views, or, or sorry, people espousing like um, point of, points of views that are like mutually antagonistic with each other. Um, whereas like personally, I find that, like I, I try to be, like I feel pretty open to new ideas, but like, certain people like um i just find like poison my mind and i think like generally like the more like i mean i go through phases but like now i feel like the, the more left-wing someone is the more i feel like they're like poisoning my mind and i just feel like it's better to to like keep that out um i remember like carl i think posted one of Nietzsche's quotes where he's like i think in the forum where where he was like like telling people to be civil with each other, saying like, "Hey, you don't have to fight everybody you see that sort of thing." But I'm not oh, sure. Citing and that. smiting become one. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what well, one cannot love, one should pass by. Yeah, yeah. And, and but, the flies in the marketplace thing, right? It's not your destiny to be a fly swat, higher man. Like, don't. Uh, basically, I mean that. It's amazing because that passage is basically written to the like person who might waste their, like it's like prophetic that there are great minds that have probably been poisoned right like the way you put it, have been wasted on these like petty intellectual disputes and like partisan intellectual disputes yeah and i'm thinking like when he goes to different climates that are more conducive to a to his thought i'm like can you make a case i mean kind of like for an echo chamber of like healthy thoughts where it's like, well, if, if, if you can't, um, you know, tell yourself like, yeah, just live wherever, endure the conditions you're in. If you, if you don't take that route, like, why would you not do the same thing for your intellectual thing? But then again, like, I mean, I, I do find that like arguing with people does make me kind of better at, at thinking. I don't know if you have, I, I think philosophy is process. Okay. So just like politics is process and blah, blah, blah. If you do not take a vow of poverty when you approach the world, then you will be attached to the world. And your attachment will cause you to rationalize and be neurotic and, 
yeah, I mean, it'll make you very active, right? Because you're attached. But it will also lead to just silliness, right? So, so like, when you're on Twitter, these are people who don't have a lot of time. They've got a hard life, and they're working hard, and someone is being a dickhead on the Internet, and it triggers them because, you know, we're not made for Twitter, right? So, yeah, I actually, I'm a fan of echo chambers. Like, I think echo chambers are good for people. I Yeah, I... Well, so that's the thing. I kind of like feel I'm on both sides of this because I agree. I like echo chambers insofar as hmm, it's like there. Here's the here's the problem. <laughs> you already have to possess the sort of like mental uh, fortitude, we'll say, to know what kind of like contradictory idea you can entertain that's not poison and so if you don't have that which most people don't then you're just going to get poisoned right and so for them for the majority the better thing is probably to just hang out in like a total echo chamber and that's actually what culture was like what we're again to go back to the culture thing unity of feeling right confronting the impersonal with a great unity I mean, like, was Renaissance Europe an echo chamber? You d- uh, you're damn right it is. And, like, it's not like you can't then create anything great out of an echo chamber. Look at all the great productions of art and culture that came out of that. But it is, like, I do think... I still have that, maybe it's because I'm, like, too American, but I have that, like, John Stuart Mill kind of, like, okay, at the same time, I... I'm like a dumb ape like everyone else. And I don't know. The problem is that I don't know the places where I am wrong. And so I need to like be able to ex- be exposed to like a dynamic environment when I can see things that I never would have considered. Like the, addressing those un- Rumsfeld's famous unknown unknowns, right? right? To quote another great philosopher, <laughs> CNN reporter Van Jones, uh, when he was saying like, we, we don't need to take the weights out of the intellectual gym. And there is like an element to like echo chambers that is going to make you like intellectually softer and more easily triggered. I think the key is not to engage in arguments with people on public forums. And I've gotten better and better about that as I've gotten older, but I'm I'm going in the right direction. That's all that matters. I, I do it almost never now, almost never. And I never do it on platforms like Twitter because it's not actually important that you have that argument, right? It, it like, but if you can expose yourself, because I have been exposed to like ideas politically from not just the left, but the far left recently. But it, it, it like, it's all about the sincerity of the person, how intelligent they actually are and whether they're arguing in good faith. Right. And again, you're not, there's no good way for you to figure out how to do that. Like if you, if you lack the mental hardware to do that, then like, you're not going to gain it. <laughs> right. Because you can't. You're not going to be able to know how to take in the good information and leave out the bad information that would help you build that. Um, and so, so it's like maybe it's a kind of an elitist argument, but it fits right in with Nietzsche's free spirit versus bound spirit thing. Like the reason is we're not built for Twitter, like Carl says, and most people need to be bound spirits. And that's what causes this whole dysfunction to take it out to a macro level is like we feel on some like deep level that the whole country should be on the same page and have that unity of feeling and it really disturbs us that half the country doesn't 
right? And uh, so I don't know. I'll, I'll stop. I'm so right. let me let me do a lightning round, okay? Yes. Uh, Andre, you go first. Is it good to complain about the weather? Is it good to complain about the weather? I mean, I, I'd say, like, personally, I find it um, distasteful to hear people complaining about the weather. I feel like some part of me, when when people say, like, oh, it's like raining or something, some part of me is like, well, you just, you're not appreciating that, that like, different modality, dude, right? Where it's like, you know, with kids, or I remember when I was a kid or something, if it was raining outside and I was able to, like, play, you know, in the rain, it wasn't really, like, a big deal. Or, like, if it's snowing... If you're just like dress appropriately, um, it's not really a big deal, right? It's like it can actually be like quite fun. Uh, all right, that's enough. And I'll, I'll cut Salts off rudely too. All right, Salts, your turn. Um, I would say yes, it's good because it's a social ritual where you're kvetching together. And well, and, and maybe my experience is a little different because I live in Texas. I find it probably exactly as banal um as most of us would to complain about the weather but like like <laughs> the thing that people complain about here the most is the heat and that's not like a modality like it's like a it's a mean <laughs> it's a it's just the mean reality for like six months out of the year and it just it's like we're fellow sufferers in hell and we have to like um lament together okay 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 so. so i think you're both correct and that at different times, it's appropriate to do it and not to do it, depending on if you're trying to elevate the conversation or if you're just trying to decrease the level of the conversation, right? So if you're trying to be more silly, then complaining about the weather is like chicken talk, right? And if you're trying to be more gravitas, then you, you know, you fucking try to draw some other subject up. But... Anyway, so I, I, that's how I feel about Twitter, and uh, that's how I feel about Socrates. <laughs> well, but like, wait, I mean, what, what do you mean? Oh, sorry, you go. Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to ask, like, uh, Carl, like, what do you, like, Twitter is sort of, it's just a, what, complaint? It's just, like, the complaint board? Yeah, kind of, but you need to, like, immerse yourself in the culture of of pain right right okay. you have to like stare into the abyss and then like i think andre what you were touching on earlier was you were feeling like the abyss was staring back into you and you didn't like it yeah maybe i'm just thinking of like um especially like when i used to spend a ton of time on forums um i would have like these experiences where i would get into debates with people and i would get the impression that like their sole um, purpose was just to like attack me. Like it wasn't like, I didn't really feel like I was learning something, but then at the same time, I'm like, well, it feels kind of necessary to be like exposed to the people who like argue in bad faith. So as to like learn how to deal with that. And I guess I'm still like agnostic as to whether or not like that's a good thing. Cause I'm just thinking like, Okay, so I'm the kind of person who's like, you know, spending all this time, like exposing myself to people who are like, you know, like vicious or whatever, while other people are just like hanging out with their friends and having a good time, right? And I'm like, am I, am I just like, you know, taking little bits of arsenic because I'm afraid someone's going to poison me? 
instead of just like, you know, having like a decent life sort of thing. Um, yeah, I don't know. That was actually, so I kind of left this out, but that I did that on the Zen forum for like five, six years, maybe probably more like five. Uh, the Zen subreddit is like one of the most toxic places on earth that you'll ever really? Yeah. Um, it's, well, things have changed significantly since. So basically there were two factions that bitterly fought for a long time. And then one of them won and several of them are moderators now. And so it's, it's kind of calmed down because they have the power to enforce their ideas. Um, like, so, you know, good for them. But, uh, I am, that's like the thing that I've like taken to be like grateful for of my time there has nothing to do with studying Zen and Buddhism. Like, I, I mean, I learned a lot about old books, dusty old books from medieval China. Um, and that was, you know, I would have done that anyway. They probably just, you know, if I hadn't had the Zen Buddhist thing, they would have just been dusty old books from some other part of the world. But um, the one thing that I only could have gotten there was like seeing the most underhanded and the most malicious rhetorical tactics and the right. worst sophistry. And the worst, like, and people who were committed seemingly with no limit on their time or amount of effort that they would put to, like, destroy people or harass people or just to push an agenda day in and day out. And I kind of realized that I was like, man, if they're doing this, if there's people who are this devoted to doing this for, like, Zen Buddhism, imagine how much crazier it is, like, the motivation that are behind people who think that, like, the debate that they're part of actually like has power over the future of the country. Right. And how unhinged that would make you. Um, but it gave me experience with like seeing, I feel like I see through bad faith actors online now very quickly and know immediately, like I can just tell, and I can't, the thing is um, it's actually very, this is a, I'm just going to steal something a friend told me. Uh, in those days, it didn't have to do with arguing, but just a really useful way of thinking about things. He was trying to explain something to me, and, and he said, it's actually really simple. It's actually so simple that there's not, I can't even really explain it to you, because it's like intuitively simple. If it was complicated, I could explain it, right? But it's so simple that I can't. It's just this one thing that needs to click in your intuition, and I feel like I can't explain what it is, but there's something that is I can so clearly see now just from the way someone talks and the way they use their language that I can immediately tell, oh, that person is totally in bad faith. Right? I feel like I gained that um, from the Zen forum. And it's probably one of the most unzen things you could get was like sharpening my debate skills. <laughs> but... but then like with that, like with that information, um, is your tactic like, okay, well, I've, I've been able to categorize this person in like a, a sort of like danger zone, but does that mean like you engage with that person to just like sharpen your own, um, like thinking? No, don't, don't engage. I no no. When I recognize somebody who's arguing in bad faith, I don't engage with them. If I do engage, it it's to be completely dismissive, and I'm and I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to everyone else. Right. That would be the only reason why I engage with them. Um, and I mean. I remember, I think it's in, I forget the dialogue, but where Socrates is arguing with a rhetorician, with a sophist. And, um, you know, this is like Socrates' argument for why rhetoric is not 
uh, worthy of respect compared to philosophy because you're not concerned with the truth. You're concerned to like what the audience hears. You're not sincerely like trying to find the truth with me. You're trying to craft an image for the audience of how the conversation is going, right? The thing is, if you realize that somebody's acting in bad faith, that's already what they're doing. So you engaging with them sincerely is like, I mean, I don't know what that is. That's like you being in a war and you being like, uh, I won't, I won't use that weapon. It's wrong to use it. And the, and your enemy's like, well, okay, fine. We'll use it. (laughs) So, um, you know, you no, you shouldn't ever engage with bad faith people. And I, in increasingly, I've seen that, that that's wildly overrepresented among people like arguing online because because arguing online excuse me because why wouldn't it be you know like it's like you have a giant audience in front of you it's like uh, you did a thing about the audience um as like being like uh what internalizing quality of performing something in some in front of an audience or like being a witness have being witnessed right right very capricious god yeah, which who is the audience, right? And so it's like that's all that a lot of people are doing when they argue like publicly is uh, they're trying to appease the gods of the audience. And the, that sincere engagement with the other person trying to find truth that Socrates is talking about, it, it, I mean, I, I think we're doing it right now, but I don't think uh, it's really possible on an internet forum for m- most of the time. There was a, a guy in the um, the reddit sub forum who who had like an interesting um you, you said something uh, earlier that reminded me of this where like he said something to the effect of like well i i listened to the first episode of the podcast and it was great but like i'm worried that like i'm going to be like imbibing the wrong it's information like classic concern trolling it's just like but like i could sort of like i i know where he's coming from i've had that feeling of like like being worried that like I'm I'm inadvertently subjecting myself to like uh, wrong think or like the wrong interpretation, like I can sympathize with that feeling where it's like um, maybe like not like you don't have like the necessary confidence to like be able to um, um, to avoid like the seductive rhetoric, right? Which I guess you know like you were saying earlier, there's like so many different influences that are like competing within our own minds that we've, you know, like we've never had like in human history that many um, different sources that we can immediately refer to without any sort of like guidance. And they're all just like infiltrating us. And it's like, you, you want like some reassurance from someone else to tell you that like those other people are correct, which, you know, ironically, you're asking other people to basically like do the thinking for you, but then also tell you that. <laughs> Right. But then the problem is, how do you choose the authority? Like, you still have to pick the person who's going to tell you. And that's right. funny because he, he's like saying, I don't trust this guy. I'm going to ask an internet forum. Like, this is the classic problem of democracy, by the way. The people who need to be taught aren't qualified to choose their own teachers. Yeah, that was what I was kind of getting at earlier, I guess. It, I, I wasn't really thinking about that, but it is the same problem, right? Of like, how do you discriminate? How much of an echo chamber do you want to have? Well, I, I think it's also the problem of art, right? Like, it's a process of possession. You're in a dark room, right? You have to find the walls. Being decadent, being wrong is okay. It's okay to be wrong. Like, it's, it's okay even 
to spend all your life being wrong and just literally exist in a total like pretend that you lived your life and were totally evil and then at the end of your life realize that you had been being totally evil right <laughs> that that is still okay because you're part of i mean this is like the doctrine of forgiveness right because you're you're just human you know you you're undergoing transformation we're we are transformative I mean, I guess the the structure of of the of the Reddit forum is that like, if if you know this guy posts and you know someone gives an answer and there's like you know however many upvotes, like quantity um, suggests correctness, which like you know when I think about like like Nietzsche's idea of like the great man, I mean some of it seems to be like completely beyond metrics. It's like like being great is like this subjective state where like the, you're you're beyond any um qualifications imposed um by others right like i yeah, mean well, i find well, some of the best comments get spam downvoted but maybe that's just me well no it is like uh it's funny because again if this guy is asking like uh is this interpretation of nietzsche accurate and he's he Andre, you phoned in on it. He's like outsourcing that to a democratic like <laughs> process, which is like what Nietzsche himself says in the texts, like uh is like the exact opposite spirit of like understanding him, right? Is like the kind of mindset of wanting to know what the majority thinks. You will not <laughs> understand me if that is your mindset. No, you have to find your own way. But it's funny, too, because Reddit isn't even genuine. I mean, there's like people, again, if you really care, right, and you're that unhinged, you will like vote bot people and brigade shit. And like, so it's not even really authentic. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it also pri prioritizes like people who get in first, right? Like the, the earliest comments or like, you know, pithy jokes and stuff like that tend to be at the top. Yeah. yeah. Like, do, you, do you want the... The, the the shit that's at the top or do you want like the bottom of the iceberg that you have to like suffer to get to right i don't have to suffer i just sort by controversial uh, <laughs> okay so let's uh there was that one there was that one uh passage that andre mentioned why don't we all all read it and then uh we'll talk about it and that'll be the last one we look at all right okay schopenhauer's educator Number six, quote, only by living for the good of the rarest and most valuable types, not for that of the majority, who are the most worthless types taken as individuals. This way of thinking should be implanted in every young man's mind. He should regard himself both as a failure of nature's handiwork and a testimony to her larger ideas. She has succeeded badly, he should say, but I will do honor to her great idea by being a means to its better success. With these thoughts, he will enter the circle of culture, which is the child of every man's self-knowledge and dissatisfaction. He will approach and say aloud, I see something above me, higher and more human than I. Let all help me to reach it, as I will help all who know and suffer as I do, that the man may arise at last who feels his knowledge and love, vision, and power to be complete and boundless, who in his universality is the critic and judge of existence. It is difficult to give anyone this courageous self-consciousness 
because it is impossible to teach love. From love alone the soul gains, not only the clear vision that leads to self-contempt, but also the desire to look to a higher self which is yet hidden, and strive upward to it with all its strength. And so he who rests his hope on a future great man receives his first initiation into culture. The sign of this is shame or vexation at oneself, a hatred of one's own narrowness, a sympathy with the genius that ever raises its head again from our misty wastes, a feeling for all that is struggling into life, the conviction that nature must be helped in her hour of need to press forward to the man, however ill she may seem to prosper, so that the men with whom we live are like the debris of some precious sculptures which cry out, Come and help us, put us together, for we long to become complete. I called this inward condition the first initiation into culture. End quote. I, I feel like we almost... Uh have like hinted we've been talking just through talking through those ideas like a lot of what's in there we've talked about but i love how he says that love produces self-contempt like talk about heightening the contradiction right and the form that self-love is often talked about in our society now as this sort of what nietzsche calls in zarathustra of wretched self-contentment or wretched self-complacency um and like here, I mean, even though this is long before Zarathustra, he's already zoned in on like, like your, your true self-love starts with a deep sense of contempt and dissatisfaction. And this perception of, um, it's like, it makes perfect sense in some, some way, right? Of like, it's so simple and yet it's kind of hard to, to, to get it there. Like he says it when he says nature has failed or has succeeded badly. Or she's failed uh, beautifully, we might say, to invert it. Um, I mean, I, I guess the the example that comes to mind when you talk about um, love there would be kind of like a, a parent who, like, they, I'm sure they, like, hate aspects of their kid, especially when they're, you know, throwing temper tantrums and stuff like that. But, like, that is part and parcel of, like, their, their general appreciation of that person. Um, I will say, like, I mean, I just switched around some words and it sounded Christian. So like, for example, if you say, with these thoughts, he will enter the church, which is the child of every man's self-knowledge and dissatisfaction. He will approach and say aloud, I see Christ above me, higher and more human than I. Let all help me to reach him. I will help all who know and suffer as I do, that the man may arise at last who feels his knowledge and love, vision and power to be complete and boundless, who in his universal universality is one with nature, the critic and judge of existence. I don't know, that doesn't seem like too glib of a, of a comparison, is it? <laughs> so Carl's going Hegelian, Andre's going Christian, and... Uh, it's a crazy mess. No, uh, I mean, actually, I think that's, that's dead on in some ways. Well, it struck me when Carl was actually talking before we read the quote where he was saying, talking about forgiveness, right, of... And and it kind of struck me that in Nietzsche's, I guess it was something you were saying that uh, his, uh, or maybe we've just talked about this before, um, in the gay science where he talks about how evil has advanced the species as much as good, right? And it is like in a strange paradoxical way, it's kind of a Christian way of like uh, redeeming the sinner, right? Like saying, well, the evil person has like a usefulness in the same way that we might say in Christianity, like... Uh, through like evil and suffering and temptation and all these things, like 
your life can have meaning insofar as you're overcoming those through Christ's sacrifice. And so I don't know, like, I think we could really get into the specifics of that. Maybe Carl has something to say about it, but I think there is something I've always maintained. There's something about Nietzsche's philosophy that is trying to actually replace Christianity. And yes. it's not like, it's not about like no gods, no masters, right? It's not just like smash it and all of that was bad. It's like, how do we recreate what this gave us in a material sense? And like what he's looking to here is nature, right? Um, and like this higher man that comes out of nature. Yeah, I think he is like, he, I think he's looking at a society that does see Christ above them as the highest man, right? That is the per perfect human. And so rather than appealing to initiation into the church and to God, which sees that martyr figure, like, you know, dying on your cross as the highest man, he would like there to be something else. But that doesn't mean that he isn't like aping the Christian uh, framework, you know. That's a really good point. I, I, like one, I mean, also another thing that that came to mind with this was, um, you know, Alain de Botton talks about how, um, I mean, he claims that it was like a, a a relatively common 19th century idea that culture would replace religion. Although, like, he made a pretty interesting um, critique of that, where he's like, you know, the general understanding in secular secular culture is that like these problems have all been like figured out, like existential issues have basically disappeared and everyone knows that, you know, you're supposed to kind of, you know, go to school, get a good job, you know, get married, um, retire in like a nice place, um, you know, have kids, whatever. And then at the end, you kind of just like close the casket on yourself and then just die peacefully. And then you're just supposed to kind of be happy with that. But he's saying that like, you know, the, the institutions that were supposed to, um, deliver on this promise of culture are all kind of failures right? like no one goes to the museum and thinks like okay well teach me about how to live life um no one goes to university and says like how do you like what is the meaning of life or stuff like that that's kind of seen as like irrelevant and i tend to agree with him like i've never like i've never really found those answers like being directly promoted to me it's it's, it's always been like sort of an, an indirect ancillary feature of like practical material success that is like you know thousands and thousands of years old like you can read you know um like letters from an acadian to his son um about how you know like you know keep your nose clean work hard blah 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 um and so like i mean i guess i can understand like his um like his um his his need here to go beyond the church and christ um, because they are like, there's something kind of, um, macabre, right. About Christ being the ultimate thing. But then like, it just, it's been, it seems to have been like a, a huge failure. Right. Which I, which is, I guess why we're here, <laughs> like studying Nietzsche. Yeah. I think, um, so well, yeah, you go. I think, uh, it seems a cruelty to compare Nietzsche to other religious figures, but he did like cruelty. <laughs> Nietzsche deserves it. Yeah. He was asking for it. But, uh, I have another aphorism. Where is this? Well, he was crucified by his, like, tumor or congenital condition or whatever. I think that's, that's, <laughs> that's how you get a, like, maybe it's not quite fair, 
um, to compare. No, no salts. He died for the horse. Right. He died for the, the love of hor of equestrian creatures. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, he died for the lower creature. It's the donkey going right at the end. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he. Uh, I guess what I'm just like saying, like you know, uh, if you only get something as powerful as Christianity out of like the you know suffering and martyrdom that Jesus endures, that's like what amplifies and power powers up that idea and allows it to resonate you know uh or like allows allows it to break into our consciousness with such force i don't know i think maybe nietzsche had some of that energy to like write his zarathustrian religion because he's like in intense pain and knows he's dying and that you'd like maybe wouldn't get something of the same caliber um well i mean we just don't when you look at all the other philosophers um, as much as I try to like shoo people away from just going and reading Zarathustra and talking up Zarathustra, um, because I think you can get a lot out of Nietzsche without even reading it, and you should probably read it last. And all these caveats of like mistakes people make. At the end of the day, no one else ever really wrote anything like Zarathustra in in the yeah. philosophical canon. That is kind of why he's so different. Right? <laughs> is that he actually tries to do the like here's my holy book, right? And like. Could Spinoza have done that with his super logical mind? No. So, like, I don't know. It it almost seems like necessary too, in some degree, because like if it was just like his like most acerbic stuff, right, where he's just like like destroying everything, like you know, taking a hammer to everyone's like the most sacred beliefs, it would have had like a much different flavor. Whereas like Zarathustra adds this like glowing like joy of life that kind of like proves that he knows what it feels like to like, like truly affirm life. Or that he has like, it, it hints to us that he actually has some sort of positive vision. Right. That's right. not just like, uh, you know, bitching about like how bad Christianity is, um, that he actually does. That's that. I mean, so I guess that is the thing that he actually does want to have some sort of other vision of what mankind could be. And it's interesting, though, well, the language that he talks about it here is that it's like it's culture that's going to do that for you. And so, again, it's like it's that strange relationship between like folk and great man where it's almost like the we're expecting this culture to make everyone more human, right? Like less barbarous less ruled by animal impulses. Um, but it's like, well, how does that happen? By striving towards like this image of the great man, I guess. Um, and so it's like that great image of the great man is what's redeeming the world and like elevating us and bringing us forward. Um, it's, it's just weird because then in later writings, he says like, well, the whole purpose of culture, it's like the, it's the passage Carl hates where uh, Nietzsche describes the nobility as like a parasitic vine strangling a, a tree, the Sipo Matador. Like the whole thing yeah. is the, the flowering of this parasite, right? The beautiful flowers that this parasite, you know, its crown unfolds as it strangles the life out of this tree. And so that's all like almost says the opposite. Rather than the great man helping the folk to become more human, it's like on the backs of the folk the great man like becomes even greater. And I don't, I don't know if Nietzsche, like you were sort of saying, Andre, maybe he doesn't actually have a coherent, like, like when you look across his whole works, you're not going to find a lack of contradictions on that point. 
Um, but I guess that's like kind of maybe one of the remaining mysteries to me of like how culture works for Nietzsche and all right. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know if, if I actually know both of you guys listened to like Yarvin on Red Scare, right? Where he was like, he, he made a really interesting point um, about how like, you know, when, when people are fighting CRT, they tend not to have something as strong as like, you know, someone who's, you know, advocating for like the return of the caliphate, like an is like, like, um, like a Muslim. The <laughs> true Islam. Yeah. Right. Well, like that, that's nothing. why the South lost the civil war. Cause they didn't just go right to Washington right away. Right. Right. Whereas the North believed in their manifest destiny and they were brutal. Right. Yeah. Like, I don't know what, um, like, I mean, we, we kind of have, um, I mean, I, I personally, I've found it like really helpful to be like part of like a Nietzschean community. I found it like for my psychological health, like a remarkable transformation personally. But like when I think about how that would like play out into like a broader cultural or like, like, like a broader societal thing of like, you know, this is what, you know, people should believe or something. This is what we should unify around. I feel like Nietzsche is like extremely controversial like i remember describing the genealogy of morals to a co-worker and she's like well that's crazy like how can you say that like how can you say that like good is like like a historically amorphous and like contingent idea well i mean if if nietzsche is the fountainhead right of the flood right and someone is descended from that they're gonna look back at him at him as some uncivilized you know barbarian well, also, so something struck me when you were talking earlier, Andre, that I, I think I've just kind of processed of, uh, like, um, culture not doing the job of religion and how, like, you don't get your meaning of life from a museum or from, like, you know, that that you never had. I think I think it was the way you said it. You never had someone sell the idea to you like that, right? Right, right. Um, and I think... Um, well, this is also like a, a, a like sort of verboten person, but not even nearly to the degree as Cur Curtis Yarvin, so I have no problem bringing him, him up, is Alan Bloom in uh, Closing in the American Mind. Basically, he opens by saying that, like, the way he puts it, he's like, relativism is our universalism. And yes. so in the academy, everyone is a relativist, and you can hold you can criticize any belief as long as that belief isn't relativism. Because once you criticize relativism and say, no, this is a universal truth that I have, um, then you've invalidated all these other beliefs that you're supposed to entertain. And basically he, he's trying to, he's trying to like um, reawaken like this love of philosophy um, and this like dialectic between these contradictions within Western civilization that he thinks is good to explore. Um, but he thinks you have to like take seriously, like, you know, you can't just like have, it's sort of like Nietzsche saying like, we need a yes and no, a straight line, a goal, right? Is like, you have to right. like take seriously, like, okay, we want liberty and we want equality, but those two things are actually incompatible when taken to their extreme, which means there's an inevitable tension and you can't just sit with the tension. You have to solve it. It's like you have the Gordian knot and you have to cut it. Um, and so maybe that's like what we're lacking in culture is that it's totally relativistic. It comes back to kind of everything, the through line through all this, right? 
too Protestant, too much revelation, hyper-individualist. So there's no, we haven't come to like that solid ground of like, this is our unifying impersonal uh, commute, communion or whatever. Um, we don't really so, have that. And, and as you're pointing out, the struggle for people like us is it probably isn't going to come from Nietzsche. But sorry. Oh, just the, I think there's something uh, comedic about how uh, John Brown and John Wilkes Booth both thought they were fighting for freedom. <laughs> right. And that at the end, you get Abraham Lincoln, who is a martyr. There's a point that um, Alan Watts made about how, like, philosophy, when it's, like, taught in school, it's it's mostly like a history of philosophy, right? Like, it goes, like, okay, well, this guy thought this, then this other guy said this. Then at the end of the class, and end, end, end of the class, it's just like, all right, well, peace, peace, like, see you later, right? It's not like, you know, this is what we think life should be about, right? It's Which I guess would be seen as, um, like, paternalistic or absolutist or, um, dare I say it, uh, fascist. Right. But yeah, no, that's a great point is like, you don't, you don't get to the, well, so I, this is maybe a wonderful thing. And okay. So this will be my final thought. Cause we've been going for like two and a half hours and then both of you can have a reaction and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. I remember in my philosophy 101 class, we started out with epistemology and we chart the entire history of epistemology through Western philosophy. And I remember when we get to the end you know, it's like we've talked about Descartes, and he's rationalist. I think, therefore, I am. And then we have, well, well, Bacon's an empiricist. And then you have this sort of back and forth. You have Kant's Copernican revolution, where you have, like, he's attempting to synthesize empiricism and rationalism, but then he ends up in this place of, like, transcendental idealism, where you know things by virtue of a faculty that you have this a priori knowledge. And then that kind of opens up, like, do we go totally idealistic, like Hegel? Uh, we have Schopenhauer kind of trying to use Plato to make sense of Kant's transcendental idealism with representations. And we have Nietzsche, who basically says, no, let's get rid of the true world altogether um, and just have representations. And then you get to like analytical philosophy where they're like, you know, philosophy can't even tell us about truth at all. We're just sort of like clarifying like linguistic confusion. And so I'll always remember it was on the last class on the topic of epistemology before we moved on to like morality or something. Right. And I don't know, I don't remember this person uh, other than the one thing she said on that day is basically, so the professor says, so um, he, he posed the question to like, and so where are we now after all of our discussion of how we know what we know? And this one girl raises her hand and she goes, no knowledge, like a question. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, pretty much. And then, like, that, I don't really remember, I mean, I know we said other things were said, I don't remember anything other than, from that day, other than that interaction. That basically, and I love that professor, but he basically sold us the idea that at the end of this centuries-long dialectic to discover how we know what we know, we discovered, well, we don't know anything. And, yeah, I mean that does not give you solid ground to stand on at all. And I, I understand the argument. I mean, Nietzsche would make the argument himself for knocking out those certainties from under people. But as you said, Andre, he also wrote Zarathustra. So he also <laughs> understands that uh, ultimately the foundation is not this like mind-independent objective reality truth thing. That's not the foundation of your life, um, right? And so... 
Um, and we were never taught that element of Nietzsche, which is probably the greatest thing about him. We were taught his critique of religion, and we did talk about his morality thing, genealogy of morality, and you know, it was it was cool. Um, but so that's kind of my so that'll be my final thought is that uh, yeah, it is the way philosophy, which that's probably the closest thing to like a you know intellectual expression of culture is taught in America uh, is at the end no knowledge so no knowledge question mark I'm, I'm gonna be annoyed yeah. do, do, you, no do you guys think uh, Twitter is gonna like like what's gonna happen is it gonna pr- like produce a monoculture and then like ossify or is it going to like stay in this perpetual <laughs> hellfire I think it's gonna die Okay. It will go the way of the buffalo. I just wanted to say, though, like, isn't it the case that, you know, Nietzsche was like a total goody two shoes when he was a kid? He had like a very like strict, like Christian upbringing. And then like just the fact that he went to university means like he knows how to follow the rules and like he he succeeded um, more than like most people in university and like proving his ability to like, you know, like go to the classics and like study the classics and have a canon like something fundamental to ground himself on right like imagine if instead of well yeah i guess i guess he would have also had like a historical approach in his school but yeah i mean it doesn't seem like at least personally i had that um that strong of um a foundation but maybe he didn't as well i mean it was protestantism after all I think maybe he would he he had a way richer foundation in the classics than most people do today and he probably still felt the way that he feels so he would see us as even more like you know there's that aphorism uh, we didn't end up talking about it but I think I sent it to y'all that Zarathustra from the land of culture too far did I fly into the future a horror you know <laughs> greeted me or whatever it was yeah Carl you have any final thoughts goodbye Okay. All right. Uh, goodbye, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Um, all right. Later. Thank you, Salt. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.